Devon. Hello. Uh, video on or off? Uh, it doesn't matter on, on my end. Hey everybody, this is Devin Boker, and you are listening to another episode of The Wildlife. It's the official podcast of the nonprofit of the same name, aimed at breaking down barriers of exclusion in STEM and the outdoors to make it a more accessible, inclusive, and safe place. If you would like to support our organization, you can do that by following one of the links in the episode notes. We also just started a newsletter. Again, check out those episode notes. One other way you can support us is by helping to spread the word. If you like our episodes, if you like this episode, share with a friend, tell someone about it. That's how we grow our community. That's how we grow our impact. Another way that helps is uh, leaving us a review wherever you're listening. Uh, Apple Podcasts, super easy to do. Slide, scroll down the screen. Uh, give us however many stars you think. Leave us a, a, a written review if, if you like. It takes 30 seconds. You can do it while listening. Um, but it helps not only to, to increase our visibility on the charts and in the different categories, but like we said, to grow the community. Biggest of thank yous to our member supporters, Gina Spadafori, Karen Bingston, the folks at Mad Scientist Pod, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin Brown, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Vikram Baliga, the host of Plant Prof. Uh, plant Prof and Planthropology, Maria Hancox, Angela Seibert, Megan Gariani, and Matt Capel. As much as I would like to tell you the number that this episode is, not sure. We're doing a bit of a recount, but what I can tell you is it is indeed another episode without Ryan Reynolds on. Yeah, uh, if you are, are new to the show, uh, then this might be news to you. But you know, we we've been uh, we've been we've been. Uh, pursuing our lifelong dream of the last two years uh, by by halfway attempting to um, make Ryan Reynolds aware that we would like to have him on the show to compare and contrast Hugh Jackman's Wolverine with that of the real-life Wolverine, the mammal, those those little guys. So, uh, Ryan, if you're out there, you know, hit us up. Today, we have another episode centered around poo kind of not really it's more centered around an animal that its life is centered around poo dung beetles and if you've made it this far in the episode you already know that because you've clicked on the episode and the title surely has something to do with it and who knows maybe you even listened to our teaser earlier this week where we got to know our guest for the week a little bit better this episode is uh well it's it's mind-blowing there's not a whole lot of chiming in. It's, it's largely conversational, just the uh, back and forth. But we cover everything. Anything that you ever maybe even halfway wanted to know about dung beetles and certainly everything that you never thought you would know nor knew there was to know because dung beetles are just that cool. We talk about the difference between the, uh, the rollers and the barriers, um, some incredibly fascinating uh, courtship behavior, and, and uh, a really interesting fact about the dung beetle that uh, won our guest for today, the Ig Nobel, and that the dung beetle uses the Milky Way to navigate. Yes, the Milky Way, like the galaxy that we are a part of hurtling around in while it hurtles through space, like that thing. Dung beetles use it. We are not alone in that regard. 
But as I said, it turns out that dung beetles are an incredibly fascinating creature who play an incredibly important role in um, the goings of things on planet Earth. Our guest for today is Professor Marcus Byrne, who won the 2013 Ig Nobel for Biology and Astronomy, along with Mary Dackey, Emily Baird, Clark Schultz, and Eric Warrant for discovering that when dung beetles get lost, they can find their way home by looking to the stars. As we mentioned, he is a professor of uh, entomology at Wits University and also zoology. If you don't know where Wits is or, or Witz, it's in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. He's not originally from there. He grew up in the United Kingdom. And despite being terrified of its limited fauna that he did get to interact with, he watched Jacques Cousteau and David Attenborough on TV and fell in love with nature. So when he was older, he moved to South Africa, got a job as a technician at the uh, Dung Beetle Research Unit in Pretoria, Australia, where they were exporting African dung beetles to control dung breeding flies. That experience opened his eyes to two absolutely wonderful and, and fascinating aspects of insects. Firstly, biological control, where one organism is used to control the population of another. And secondly, that dung beetles are just awesome. They're enigmatic little insects that continue to entertain him, even 30 years after first encountering them. So wherever you are, hide your dung, because the beetles are coming. Okay, well, um, have you always loved science? I think so. Um... You know, it's difficult to, I'm 61, so looking back over your life, your memory is a sort of fragile thing. But it, as a kid, I can tell you that my mum and dad bought me these books. They were called How and Why Wonder Books. Hmm. And they listed great scientists in it, like Marie Curie and people like that. And I discovered the Nobel Prize in there. And I remember writing at school when I did a little project about myself when I was 11, I wanted to win the Nobel Prize. So I guess I must have had uh, scientific pretensions from a very early age. I, I've, um, I'm much younger, um, but, you know, I, 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 my, uh, my parents, um, well, my, my brother just recently moved up locally to where I live. And um, when he was doing that, they sent a bunch of stuff just because my, my parents held on to everything, like every little piece of paper from school. And uh, I found all these papers from like kindergarten and, and first grade that are saying, you know, I want to be an explorer or a scientist and stuff. And it's just, it's just been kind of funny to look at the, you know, the different ways you describe it. Right. So now you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah brilliant. So when was the point in your life where you, where you came upon dung beetles and you thought, I want to study these. Yeah, and that was actually completely accidental um, because I emigrated from the UK to South Africa. And I was looking for a job and I was looking for um, actually to continue studying because I had a bachelor's degree from the UK. So I went to the local university, Witts University, University of the Wartesrand, and I asked them, can I do an NSC? And they said, yeah, that's fine. And I said, can I have a job as well, please? And they said, uh, no, sorry, we don't <laughs> dish out jobs. But these people 
were looking for a lab technician. And it was the Dung Beetle Research Unit in Pretoria. Um, and it was the Australian Dung Beetle Program, which was importing dung beetles into Australia to control huh. dung breeding flies. And I thought, oh, because at university I hated entomology. I thought insects were absolutely boring. And I went for this interview with this hairy guy who had this enormous beard, looked like one of ZZ Top. And he showed me this tiny little insect stuck on a pin and said, this is what you're going to be working on. Isn't that exciting? And I thought, mm, okay, because I wanted the job. So it, it, it dawned on me really, really slowly um, how fantastic dung beetles are because, you know, I, I took the job because I wanted it, not because I had any passion for beetles. And then as I discovered the beetles, all else is history. I just couldn't leave them alone. You know, a few years ago, I'm trying to think of when it was, um, 20, 2016, 2017, somewhere, somewhere in there, um, I was out working as a naturalist for a state park. And along the trail, it was kind of sort of after morning rain and there was just a lot of insect activity. And I remember watching these um, Ameri American carrion beetles that were scuttling mm -hmm. along and I'd never actually seen them in person before and then I saw these these little brown things and I was like huh I don't really know what that is and so I took out some ID guides and stuff and uh, realized it was a dung beetle and I was kind of shocked because um, you know I'd never really taken much of an interest and I'd, I'd only really ever been exposed to them you know watching nature documentaries and it's typically like you know in Africa or something like that and, mm -hmm. and yeah you don't really see them any, anywhere else. And then I was kind of astonished to learn how many were in North America. But how many how many types of dung beetles are there and where all can they be found? Oh, big question. 6,000 species worldwide. Oh, um, wow. So there are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. and, and that's amazing because that means dung is a very tight market. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. you know those carrion beetles, there are very few species of them, but dung beetles, it's incredible that the number of species that will occur on one dung pet. So you can get up to 100 species on a single dung pet. This is going to be one of the very few detours in this episode because, um, well, one context and two, it's just incredible. So beetles, which dung beetles are a part of, of course, um, are actually all insects that belong to an order called Coleoptera. It's like coal... C-O-L-E, Optera. They include like 350,000 species, which means that they are actually the largest group of animals on the entire planet. Like 25% of all animal species are beetles. And in fact, there's a lot of insects that you might not realize are beetles, but are in fact beetles. Like for example, fireflies slash lightning bugs, slash whatever you might call them. They are, in fact, a beetle. So we've got 2,000 species in Africa. We've got 800 species in South Africa. You've got about another 2,000 species in the Americas. So we are well supplied with them. But it's interesting to hear that Americans are not that conscious of them because South Africans certainly are. And maybe it is the Africa thing. Um, and we're very proud of them as well. But the other interesting thing about them is, is that the numbers drop off as you go towards the poles. So the bulk of the beetles are at the equator. Mm -hmm. 
And that's where the rollers are as well. The ball rollers are in the hotter areas. Um, so we, we've got a few here. And then as we get into the hotter areas of South Africa, we've got maybe 80 species of ball rollers here. And those are the ones that people notice because, hey, they're out there. They're in front of you, just like you saw them on the trail. Yeah. You can't miss them once your eye is hooked into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I notice them all the time now. <laughs> they just kind of stick out. Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> it's it's sort of. Uh, I remember back in in college, my first time around. Um, I think it was my my Malji professor. I think at the time we were in ecology, um, and we he had brought up this question about like, you know, if if things didn't die, or if or if nutrients weren't recycled, like how many rabbits, like how deep we would be in rabbits, kind of thing. He was just using rabbits as a analogy. And I just remember it being kind of funny and it stuck with me a little bit. Um, and then with, with, uh, dung, I mean, you kind of have to wonder how much there would be if there wasn't things responsible for taking care of it. So I wonder how efficient are dung beetles and how much dung are they responsible for getting rid of? Most of it. And they're very efficient um, because somebody has actually done that calculation in Kenya. They did it in the 70s. And I can't remember the figures, but the figure, the same guy, Malcolm Coe, published for that was that um, he put out a one and a half kilogram elephant dropping. So what's that in pounds? Um, about three or four pounds of mm-hmm. elephant poo. And in two hours, it was gone. Um so he counted, he estimated there were 16,000 beetles on that dropping. And then oh. he extrapolated that to the whole landscape and calculated this enormous figure of dung disappearing underground. But in terms of efficiency, basically one beetle will shift four times its own body weight um, at a single dung pet. Oh, wow. So they are incredibly efficient at this job, which is critical, like your teacher asking about the rabbits, putting the stuff back underground means that it recycles all the nutrients in there. And it's it's critical for us and the rest of the planet. Yeah, I suppose that's the other thing I was wondering. And and I have some experience seeing something really similar where um, I was out on a trail for work and and it was one where I kind of did a morning round every day. And, um, I heard a thud behind me turn around and there was kind of just like, I don't really know how to put it like intestines. So I'm assuming a bird or something like had dropped them like a, a hawk or something. Um, and then, so I, I went back to get a shovel, maybe, maybe two minutes came back and they were covered with, um, dung beetles, wasp and, um, carrion beetles. And so then I went back because I wanted to grab a camera, came back a few minutes later and there was even more on there. So then I went back to go get our intern because I was like, they, they're going to want to see this. Waited on them for maybe 20 minutes, then got back out there and the whole thing was gone. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, where did it go? <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Uh, exactly. You know, the stories here from people out in the bush, you know, relieving themselves in the bush and you turn around and there are beetles on it, literally as you're finishing your business, to the extent where people in the past, and even in uh, some developing countries, they think that the dung beetles have come out of their own intestines because they're they're there. You you can only have passed the beetle, which is not the case. I mean, there are some beetles that literally hang on to the fur around the backside of a wallaby to make sure they're there first. 
as I said, dung is a tight market and you've got to get in quick. How does that, how does that work? I mean, how do they locate it so quickly? Well, as I said, there are those ones that um, remain with their hosts, like there's some species on sloths um, that are described as glistening jewels around the genitalia because they just basically <laughs> hang on to this poor animal waiting for them to climb down out of the trees every three days and do a poo. Glistening jewels. Then there's some on the wallabies, but the bulk of them are f- fly. That's how they oh. find the dung. So... Of the 6,000 species, I would say probably five and a half, five to five and a half fly. And they're very strong flyers. And when they fly, they've got their antennae out. So you think of the classic insect with its feelers. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're feelers to a certain extent, but they're better described as smellers. And they're extremely sensitive sense organs. And these guys can smell dung. Uh, meters and meters away and then you see them basically flying at about three meters above the bush and when they pick up the scent of dung then they drop to around about a meter above the ground and they start quartering up the breeze towards the dung so it's obviously smell that that, that they use to find the dung you mentioned burying it i mean is that is that really what they're doing with it you know dung beetles really are animals of the soil they they don't want to be out um where it's hot and it's dry and there are predators and all sorts of other things to deal with. They are soil creatures and the only time they really leave that habitat is to go and forage or to look for a mate. Um, And foraging obviously means they're going looking for poo. And the thing with dung is it's an ephemeral food source. It dries out. It's not going to last very long. It's only there temporarily. Uh And also someone else is going to steal it. So there are principally one way to deal with that is to bury it. And the, and the principal ways of burying it, either you take a slice of the cake and it's like being a, a greedy guts at a party and going and hitting the birthday cake for all you're worth and taking a big chunk of it and running off into the bushes with it. And those are the ball rollers that we all know about. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of dung beetles, in fact, about 90% of the species are tunnelers. And unless you're going to get poo under your fingernails and go poking around in the stuff, you won't even see them because most of them fly at night. They zoom straight in, zook into the poo, and then they tunnel directly down beneath the pet and move the dung into a tunnel and make a nest below the dung pet. So they shuttle back and forth between the soil surface and their nest. And and in that way, they can shift an enormous amount of dung. And I've seen before some things about the actual act of rolling having some kind of play in uh, reproduction. So how, how do they reproduce? First thing to tell you, though, is that they're basically normal terrestrial animals in that they copulate. So the male places sperm inside the female mm-hmm. uh, in a, by mating. Um, and that's, that's it. Uh, the female, um, like many insects, can store sperm, which is a really clever thing to be able to do, particularly if you're a woman. You might think about that. Actually, yeah. Um, let's let's pause for a second to think about that um, for for just a quick moment because it is really really incredibly fascinating. Now, um, you might if you if you are from certain regions of the world listening to this and and you hear oh, a woman a woman is clever for thinking that you might not get right away necessarily that that what that means is well it's it's an incredibly intelligent evolutionary skill because. 
let's be real. Um, across across pretty much the entire animal kingdom, um, being the female is more energetically expensive, meaning uh, uh, it takes more energy for you to do the normal things that you need to do, in part having children. There's also a big, big difference in that most, most species, the female produces a limited amount of eggs that can be fertilized, whereas males produce near endless amounts of sperm and near daily, which means that they can kind of use it willy-nilly, however they feel, whereas um, the females, they, they, they need to make choices. They need to make sure that the, the males that they allow to fertilize their eggs are going to be the best option. And so uh, in, in different species across the animal kingdom, they have, they have evolved and adapted the ability to store some of that sperm or to direct sperm to actual fertilization and direct sperm to not fertilization, just a, a dumping ground. Um, that, that ability to choose is incredibly powerful. Um, and then she can decide when she uses that sperm to fertilize an egg coming down her oviduct. And the interesting thing about dung beetles is the egg is so massive that she only uses one of her ovaries. So they have asymmetric ovaries instead of being paired like most other animals including ourselves dung beetles only use one of the, the pairs and they produce a, a huge egg it can be almost a third of their body mass when wow. they produce it and they place that inside a food package which is the, the dung ball effectively and that's the way we define what a dung beetle is it's that it's this group of beetles that make this food package this lunch box for their babies and they pop the baby in the middle of the lunchbox. So she'll make a ball, and then she puts an egg in the middle of it, and then the larva hatches inside that ball and eats its way around and around and around the inside of the ball. And that's something that we're dying to get into the research of because it has to defecate inside its own lunchbox, if you think about it. Um, and therefore, it has to eat its own feces again. And that's not unusual. You know, rabbits do that to, yeah. to a certain extent. A cow does it. You know, okay, it shifts it from the top end of the system, but it, when it chews the cud, it regurgitates its own food and chews it again. Yeah. And we don't know what's going on. You know, that, that could be a rumen like the rumen in the, in the cow, except instead of the rumen being inside the cow, the beetle is living inside its own rumen as, as a larval beetle inside this bull. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the, the hardcore part of the reproduction. But the, the, the interesting thing is, is that um, different types of beetles have different strategies. So I told you there were tunneling beetles. Yeah. And they tend to have um, males that defend tunnels with females in them. Oh, okay. And so uh, their whole story in their life is looking as big and as beautiful as possible. Whereas the ball rolling beetles are sort of stripped down racing versions and they can't afford any ornamentation on their body. When they roll a ball away, it has one of three fates. 
And you can generally tell from the size of the ball. If it's kind of a small, not very well-made ball, it, um, that's a feeding ball. It'll be buried maybe five, 10 centimeters and uh, about the size of a golf ball maybe or a small egg. Okay. And it'll be eaten over about five days. If it's for reproduction, it'll be about the size of a cricket ball or a grapefruit. It'll be okay. huge. And often you'll see a pear on it and they'll bury that and then she will lay the egg in it. He, if he's with her, he'll copulate with her. If she's already mated, she doesn't need a male. Hmm. But the third one, the third fate is a very small ball that a male rolls away and then he buries it in a very shallow tunnel and then he comes to the top of the tunnel and he sticks his backside out. So he basically sticks his bum in the air <laughs> and then he strokes his legs against his own abdomen and you can see a pheromone coming off his body. So he actually releases this pheromone to draw in a female. And uh, if she comes along, he'll copulate with her, and then she goes down to the end of the tunnel to eat the nuptial gift, the wedding gift, which hmm. is a box of chocolates. Well, it isn't in this case. It's actually a little ball of poo, but yeah. it's his investment <laughs> in the next generation. So, so it depends who you are and what you're up to, how you reproduce as a dung beetle. Yeah, so, so the... Um... The 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 larger ball rolling that you find a pair on is that sort of is that kind of like a uh, you know oh look at how large of a ball I've been able to gather and accumulate I'm a fit male kind of thing is is that is that that purpose? Really good question, and the short answer is we don't know hmm. because yes, females of all sorts of animals, including ourselves, are susceptible to visual signals of male fitness you know how look at me look at you know look at my ferrari uh well no it's a ball of poo but uh we don't know we don't know the answer to that and that's a really nice question that you know we could be asking out in the field um do females go for guys with big dung balls <laughs> so how do you tell the uh the males and the females apart i, I heard you, you mentioned you know ornamentation on some of these but otherwise yeah. how do you tell so so the tunnelers are the guys that are ornamented and generally the males have got horns because that's what they use for defending the tunnel so imagine a, a beetle sitting at the end of a tunnel with his head blocking the tunnel with a big set of horns on there hmm. and he can fight off other males um and then the females are usually hornless that in itself is another brilliant story because um depending on how much food they get in the brood ball, the, the lunchbox, mm -hmm. depends on their body size. And their body size depend, uh, is then influences the likelihood of them getting a decent pair of horns. So if you're an underfed little male, you'll come out as a hornless runt, for want of a better word, because you haven't had enough energy in your lunchbox to invest in horns. And then the only way you're going to get access to females is by sneaking and pass the male at the front door in the tunnel mm -hmm. and trying to get access to females in tunnels that way. And so we call them sneaky copulators. They dig side tunnels around the guy at the front door who's the big macho character, and then they try and access females through the back door. And then with the ball rollers, it's very difficult to tell the males and females apart because, as I said, they're sort of stripped-down racing versions. Mm -hmm. But the key for those guys is remember i talked about the brushes brushing the 
the pheromone off the body. Yeah. And if you look at the back leg, the males have got this little shaving brush of a small sort of a group of hairs that look like a little shaving brush that are used to brush the uh, the pheromones away. So we can tell the sex from external features, but you you just have to know which bit to look at. So if you came into this at any point thinking that dung beetles were just going to be a simple story about a simple bug rolling around some poop and that was about it and you and you couldn't fathom why there was uh, about an hour little more devoted to uh to such a creature um maybe maybe now you're getting the idea and and this is just the part about their relationships with each other this isn't even about the parts with uh you know involving their relationships with with us with with whole ecosystems with the climate with with the planet and and their connection to the stars we're gonna get to that right after the break Hi there from the Hikopper's crew. Hikopper's mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind, and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves, and to nature. From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. You heard that right. Animal Sound of the Week is, in fact, back. Last week's sound, guess what? We got a winner. A winner, Maria Hancocks, one of our longtime patrons, friends, and uh, actually a previous guest on the show. Um, she managed to guess it correctly. It was a gibbon. It's a type of monkey, kind of. It's a it's a primate from South America. Um, really adorable, but very loud. This week, we've got a new sound. And again, as always, submit your guesses on our social media. Or you could always email us if you feel so inclined at uh, hello at the wildlife.blog. Um, but here it goes. Here it goes. And we are back. Like we said just before the break, uh, now is the time of the show for Silly Songs with Devin. No, just kidding. Um, now is the time of the show where we are going to get into... Uh, the connection to um, not just poo, but you and, and the world and um, the stars. So cozy up, maybe use the restroom quick, but uh, no, no need to stop listening because it's, it's just in theme with the show. This is something I, I think about because, I mean, of course, there's, there's the, the obvious as far as, um, you know, if, if they weren't doing this, uh, you know, we, we might have a lot more dung on the surface of the planet uh, that we would then have to deal with in some other way or some other animal would have to figure out how to deal with it or something. Um, but aside from just the, the cleanup crew aspect and, and, you know, getting rid of it, um, what other ways do they help the environment? 
Yeah, good question because you know we're under pressure at the moment. We lots of um, research is showing that the numbers of insects are just crashing all over the world, and these are the little guys that run the world. E.O. Wilson is a very famous entomologist who said that. Mm-hmm. And dung beetles are a perfect example because, as you said, they are the cleanup guys. But if you think about what they're doing, you know they make a tunnel. They always bury the stuff, so immediately they're aerating the soil. There's a massive job that's taking place. And then they also help penetration of water into the soil, so it stops runoff. So in terms of soil health, these these guys are essential ecosystem engineers that are giving us an, an ecosystem service here. And then on top of that, they're also controlling parasites. If you think about, you know, many of us have got parasites in our guts and the way those are spread is through eggs through our feces and that's humans cows dogs whatever and if you've got a little insect burying this stuff and actually mincing it up at the same time they're very important for controlling parasites as well so they have a whole heap of jobs that they're just getting on with just like you discovering them on the trail and you and i unless we go and look we wouldn't have realized that you know, do they do they play a role in in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like carbon uh, storage? Yep, exactly. Because um, basically, dung is, and particularly herbivore dung has a, a huge amount of carbon in it, and they return it to the carbon cycle by putting it back into the ground. And they do the same with nitrogen. Even though you know nitrogen is what we turn into protein, so nitrogen is the stuff that we're all looking for. That's what you want in the hamburger is you want the patty. The, the bread is literally just the padding in there. And dung beetles are the same. They're after very scarce nitrogen in the dung, but there's still some left after it's come through the cow. And if it was left on the surface, it would disappear into the atmosphere. If it's buried into the ground, then the plants can get hold of it and it, and it um, fertilizes the soil. So essential part of the the carbon and nitrogen cycle. See, this is what I love about this is what I love about dung beetles and just natural selection and 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 nature in general. It's just such a um, you know people talk about niches and you know frequently they focus on you know very peculiar um, specific uh, you know more I guess appetizing. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a poor choice of words. Appetizing um, <laughs> niches. Um, but you know, here you have these these beetles, six thousand species of beetles that, at some point, uh, you know, it, not like they knowingly, consciously are, are providing this service for the planet, but it's such a vital role for the planet, and um, it just it kind of blows my mind to think about the, you know something something adapted to you know smell poop, look at it, and say, oh, you know this this is a good source of something, and bury it underground and and use yeah. it in all these all these bizarre ways. It's just uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I agree because the way I view it is it's a resource, and mm-hmm. you know people always say, oh, what use are mosquitoes? Well, they're no use depending on unless you're a bat or a bird you want to eat it. But mm-hmm. you and I are a resource for that mosquito, and therefore they have evolved to take advantage of us to make babies for themselves. And it's the same way with the dung beetle. There's the poo, and boy, it's a resource, and someone's going to go for it. And you're right, there they are, this highly evolved group, 6,000 species, all poo specialists. Fantastic. (laughs) 
you know, I, I like that point because you do frequently, hear, you know, that, that about um, mosquitoes and ticks and all kinds of stuff where it's just, well, what's the point? What purpose do they serve? You know, what value do they have? But that's all framed through a human sense of value. And it's not considering that maybe we're the product, maybe that <laughs> yeah. we are the resource and, and, you know, not everything is about how we use something. Sometimes it's about how we're used. And that's, that's yeah. interesting. I agree. <laughs> huh? So, so how, how are they important to people? I know that we just <laughs> kind of just yeah. flipped that, but you know, if, if we were to look at it from the, the human perspective, you know, how, how are they important to people? Well, again, I think it's a great question because, you know, in terms of culturally um, beetles have gone literally from being gods all the way down to being forgotten. Um, and so in our human history and in our very recent human history, they've filled an enormous place, uh, particularly in the Egyptian mythology, because uh, they were regarded as representation of resurrection, because out of this ball of filth buried in the ground emerged a new individual. Mm. So out of a body buried in a, in a sort of ritualistic manner by the Egyptians, they hoped that um, people would, would be resurrected. And if you look at Egyptian um, tombs and the illustrations on the tombs, you'll see lots of their gods have got animal heads. So Horus has got the head of a falcon, for instance. And Kepa is... The dung beetle god, he's got the head of a dung beetle. It's a very bizarre looking image. And he he was the god of resurrection. So, you know, that was a key issue in the Egyptian yeah. uh, culture. And then they seem to have faded out of, uh, of popular culture. And what's interesting is we don't really know much from South America, and I'm hugely embarrassed to say we don't even know that much from um, Southern Africa because it always astonishes me that um, these animals that are so obvious, because we've talked about that, you know, how we both see them on the surface doing stuff. People way back were clever. You know, we, these weren't stupid people and they were really good observers. And we know the Egyptians climbed into the dung beetles and gave them a role in their mythology. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed that we haven't discovered any of that in South America or, or South Africa or Southern Africa. Um, because we know termites were a massive thing here. We know bees were part of the mythology, but it's very difficult to find any records of dung beetles. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. But, but anyway, in, in modern culture, the dung beetles kind of fallen off the, off the perch. The Egyptians used to turn them into earrings, um, so they had real specimens. They were dead and preserved and then encased in jewellery because the sorry not the Egyptians the Victorians oh. um, they had a bit of an obsession about um, Egypt because a lot of these tombs were discovered during the Victorian era mm -hmm. and then I think we're we're back to now getting a grip on them because we're discovering all sorts of things about them one is what we talked about earlier the the ecosystem services they're giving us but the other side of the story is their genetics um, because we're looking at them for models of speciation so we're helping dung beetles are helping us to understand how evolution operates because you and i were talking about you know how species occupy a niche yeah but how does a species just pop into existence <laughs> and 
it's difficult to come up with that. But some dung beetles have a horn in the pupil stage, mm -hmm. and then it disappears in the adult. Now, we can look at the genes that trigger those, the presence, absence of the horn, and then we can envisage a new species suddenly emerging, bock, fully made with a horn, because it's um, a mutation that the horn is retained in oh, the adult. Yeah. And wow, suddenly we've got a new species. Mm -hmm. So dung beetles, important to humans. Yeah, ecosystem services. Culturally, yes, they were. And now if we take science as a culture, then wow, they're back with full force. What is it about the rolling backwards? Yeah, good question. <laughs> it seems <laughs> kind of counterintuitive. Like if you want to roll something, you want to see where you're going. So I, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the short answer is we don't know um, because there might be the mechanics of pushing versus pulling, mm, which okay. if you try it yourself, you, you get more traction if yeah. you push something. So most of the rollers do roll backwards, but nevertheless, because nature's wonderful and evolution is just unbeatable, some of them do, there are pullers. So... There's a, um, a whole genus called Sisyphus, which is named after the Greek um, mythological figure that had to roll the rock to the top of the hill for eternity, and then it rolled back down again. So Sisyphus, as a genus, and there are about 20 species in that genus, they will turn around and pull the ball, which is just wonderful because everything changes then. Their head, their orientation of the head to the world and the sky yeah. is completely different to the guy with his head down rolling backwards. And, and then there's another group um, which is called Pachysoma, which occurs in the, on the west coast of South Africa and Southern Africa. And they live in an arid area. It's, it's a very dry area. And they pull pellets of dung forwards. So they grab them with their back legs and they pull them forwards. So, yeah, you're right. Rolling backwards is, is the one way. And we think the key there is it allows them to look at the sky. That's, that's, and we think maybe the pushing is to their advantage. But other than that, we don't know. So there's a PhD for you if you want to. <laughs> how, um, how far might they, you know, what, what kind of distance might they cover? Yeah, we've also investigated that. And in a natural situation, depends on the size of the beetles. So the sort of small, medium-sized guys go about seven and a half meters, um, and then they bury it. And the bigger guys go about 12 and a half meters. So what's that? Uh, take that as yards, and that would give you a, a sort of direct conversion. Oh, so, yeah, okay, sure, sure. But, but we've also tormented them because they are superb experimental animals, and we have done lots of investigations of their rolling behavior. And we've put them on an all-weather hockey pitch. So, you, you know, this uh, astroturf. And then yeah. they just go forever. And we've had 30 meters out of these poor guys just head down and rolling. So it, it depends is the short answer. It depends if they find a spot that suits them to bury their ball. And the ones that we've measured in the wild that I said the 7.5 and, and 12 meters, we think that a switch eventually falls that says, Better get off the surface. Better, better get underground. I will take you know whatever feels right and start digging a hole here. Sure. So how do they um, how do they know where they're going? And are, you know you mentioned smell. Are they are they more visual? Is there some kind of you know 
ability to to detect you know okay the soil's gonna be too hard and rocky here or it's softer here something like that yeah no the short answer is they don't know where they're going they haven't okay. a clue um because if you think about it you know the beetle's flown in and it could have flown in from we know two kilometers we've we've got some data on that it could be 10 kilometers because we know bees will forage over 10k so so these are big distances drops out of the sky onto a fresh poo. This thing has only been there for, for minutes, hours. We've discussed that already. And it's got to grab a piece of the cake and, and run away with it. So it hasn't got time to learn anything about that local habitat. And then it just heads off in a set direction. And that's the key that we have learned is the shortest way out of anywhere is in a straight line. And as long as the animal can keep a straight line for itself, then it doesn't really care where it's going. And then it's presumably sampling the soil, like you said, as it goes along. Is this soft? Is it hard? Have I come up against a rock? Um, and then when the trigger falls, the switch falls, then it will start to bury. So, so those are the classic ball-rolling beetles that we call orientators. But there are another group, the guys that I was talking about dragging the pellets, those are what we call provisioners, and they do form a nest. Um, and they navigate, which is a completely different behavior to orientation and much more complicated. Would you, you like know, me to uh, explain the, the navigation story? Yes, yes. Uh, that's what I was curious about is the, uh, the Milky Way. Yeah, well, well, now those guys, the Milky Way guys are classic orientators. So they're just looking for some sort of signal that allows them to keep a straight line. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about going out into the into the bush when you do your trail walks and things like that. I don't know what your sense of direction is like. Mine is just pathetic. I can get <laughs> lost in my own back garden. But you know, you as a as a hiker will know what well okay, what I'll do is I'll take a sighting on a very distant mountain or a hill. And then if I keep it on my left or I keep it on my right or I head straight to it or straight away from it, I know where I'm going. And that's essentially what the average dung beetle does, is it takes a very distant cue and that you can't get any better than the sun because that's pretty far away. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't move as you move relative to it. Whereas if you choose a tree that's close by, um, oh, sure. The, the tree appears to move against the background and then you're lost again. Yeah. So, so that's the, the classic way of moving is you use the sun. Now, we've said already that dung is a tight market. So, well, how are you going to escape all that competition? Well, work at night. Brilliant. So what are you going to use as you queue at night? Yeah, use the moon. Oh, that's pretty cool. But the moon's not there most of, well, around about half of the nights, the moon's not available because mm -hmm. um, it's either hasn't risen or it's tiny so what's the what's the next trick for your distant queue the milky way um because that is a great big fat visual signal that yeah. down here anyway in the summer stretches across the middle of the sky and um these guys basically use that as a as a distant queue and, and it's it's hugely romantic. When we published our paper on it, we just got so many messages and uh, all sorts of recognition from all over the world because 
people were just blown away by the fact that this tiny little insignificant dirty smelly insect <laughs> was looking at the center of our galaxy i mean how romantic can you get yeah, right right no it's just fascinating it's like um i don't know it just i, I guess you know as it, it like a human-centric sort of thing you know one of our one of our things is you know looking to the stars and, and using the stars and it, it's a proud thing you know that that we you know had the awareness and the wherewithal to to look to the stars and use them for orienteering and stuff and so to think you know that here's this, this little beetle that's doing the exact same kind of thing it's it's looking to the stars that is really interesting yeah i think you're right i think that's probably why we 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 probably align ourselves with a with an insect which is a very unusual thing for to do. so how do they have like really exceptional vision then or is it just no. that bright no yeah that well again it's one of these things that it, it's a more complicated answer than just yes no um up close pretty good vision um distant stuff very poor vision and probably the easiest way to illustrate it to you is that if you hold your finger out at arm's length your index finger and hold it up and look at your fingernail that's about the pixel size that they the best dung beetle eye can see in. Mm. So it has a very, very coarse view of the world. So stuff that's up close, you can see well because the pixels are big enough, um, or I should say small enough. Um, but very distant objects like a star, mm -hmm. are st uh, they're, they're too small to resolve in a single pixel. So we know that dung beetles can't see the stars but we know that they can see this swath of light across the sky. So what they're responding to is areas of light and dark, and they're basically using that as the cue, say, keep the light area on the right-hand side, and then I'll just keep trucking. Mm. And what we're doing at the moment is looking at the effect of light pollution on these guys. Ask about that. Yeah, and so... We were really disappointed. Guess what? Dung beetles in a city can find their way around. They can orientate because, really? yeah, the, you know, there are bright lights and you keep it on the left or the right or you head straight towards it or straight away from it and you can keep going. What, what we think messes, will mess them up is two situations. One is when it's just the city sky with nothing on the horizon hmm. and that sky it is full of pollution and it's full of light pollution, and so you can't see the stars, and then they get lost. Sure. And then the other thing, yeah, that yeah, so that then they can't orientate. And then the other thing that will um, we think mess them up is actually flying, because if you think of the number of insects that turn up at bright lights, yeah, um, it's it's irresistible for these guys, and um, and you can collect dung beetles at bright lights. So we think. All in all, light pollution is probably bad for them, but in terms of their orientation, no, they can they can carry on as as if <laughs> things wrong. What is your um what is your favorite dung beetle story? You know, from working out in the field or in the lab or just in general? Yeah. That that was one of the hard um questions that you gave me and and I'm glad you gave it to me in advance because it allowed me to think about it. <laughs> And I actually spoke to my family about it and, um, and they reminded me that I did a program with David Attenborough on 
orientation in dung beetles oh, wow. not that long ago so yeah can you imagine them you know i don't i presume you as a wildlife enthusiast have your icons and david attenborough for most of us is oh yeah though certainly <laughs> yeah and he's the reason he's the reason i'm a scientist because i used to watch him on the telly so anyway i get to work with david attenborough fantastic and we're in the bristol planetarium um basically doing these experiments that we were just talking about using the Milky Way. So we're projecting the Milky Way onto the ceiling. And um, we've, we've talked through the script and all sorts of things. And David Attenborough comes out with words that I'd actually stolen from somebody else, but, you know, that's the way life goes. But he basically came out and said, had the Egyptians known that this lowly, creature was using the Milky Way to orientate by, then they surely would have felt vindicated in raising it to the status of a god. Mm. And then, cut, and then he recited Wordsworth's daffodils. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high over vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils which has got a whole um, verse about the stars in the Milky Way. In the breeze, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line. And it was just this incredible moment of being with your icon <laughs> sitting in the dark. At a glance, tossing their heads in a sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkle. <laughs> Hearing him repeat something that you yourself had written. Gay. In such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought, what wealth the shoe. And then quoting Wordsworth at you, it was just too much. It was fabulous. It was a, a, a moment I will never forget. The flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Yeah, how could you? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. My, my, my daughters, on the other hand, told me that it was always having dung in the freezer at home that they <laughs> felt was their favorite daffodil story. They had to be careful which ice cream containers they opened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I suppose you don't want to get the wrong scoop. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of the other end of, you know, romance through to each. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned at the very top, you were talking about, you know, being a kid and, and you know, wanting to win the Nobel Prize someday. And so in a way, you have, but but so how, how did that feel? You know, you have this very interesting research, very fascinating stuff, and then you get the IG Nobel for it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, they're they're very good because they phone you up and they they ask you, "Are you in for this?" Mm -hmm. And I think that's very clever because they don't want to embarrass you, and yeah. and their byline is science that makes you laugh, then makes you think. Mm. And we all know there's been some crazy stuff on the Ig Nobel prizes, people. Yeah. Uh, levitating a frog with maglev and things like that. And so I have to admit, myself and my colleagues, 
we did think about it before we said yes. And then we thought, no, this is brilliant. And in fact, it's one of the best things we ever did. Um, you know, apart from the Milky Way story, turning mm. up to the Ignobles was just fabulous. It's this nutty, nutty evening. Um, it's like a sort of badly written farce. Um, <laughs> but it was just great fun. And we met all these amazing scientists doing crazy things. And... Um, and it hasn't done us any harm whatsoever. So I, I'm really glad that we did it. It's described as a science prize that has lots of cachet and no cash. <laughs> and um, and it's, that's absolutely spot on. I'm really glad we accepted the, the nomination. It was something like, um, you know, it's a good point about the kind of makes you laugh at first, but then it's actually really thought provoking and interesting. A couple of years ago, can't remember what year but I, I remember one of them was um basically the sloshing mechanics of of how not to spill a cup of coffee while walking where, yes. where a graduate student had, <laughs> yes. yeah and have looked at that but it was all about you know sloshing mechanics and that's something that people really probably don't think about as even being something to consider you know what are the practical applications of that but it has a lot to do with rocket fuel and transportation of liquids uh you know at high high uh accelerations and into space and um and so the the you know the basis of like okay well you know what's the best way to walk and maneuver while holding a cup of coffee to counteract the slosh and and now that could then be applied to something it was just like oh okay okay that's actually pretty interesting yeah yeah exactly i mean we go back to you talking about science at the very start mm -hmm. Yeah, we can turn anything into useful information for us because um you know, for instance, with the dung beetles, mm -hmm. we've spent years, 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 years looking at how they roll a ball in a straight line. And I didn't finish it. I was going to talk about the navigators that can actually go back and forth between the nest and the oh, food yeah. sort, mm -hmm. which, which is a, in itself is a fantastic ability. And again, I have, I'm useless at it. I, I have terrible difficulty. <laughs> Um, finding my way around and they do it by a thing called dead reckoning so not only do they use a cue in the sky like the sun or the polarized light or what or the moon or yeah. the stars but they also count their steps now this is an insect you know and it counts its steps it knows how far it's gone and it knows what bearing what angle it has taken relative to its nest or its food source and can find its way back oh, this wow. doesn't yeah it doesn't need a satellite doesn't need a gps and where this information is now being used is in building autonomous vehicles that can find their way through an unknown landscape. And that could be where you're hiking and you've got lost um, and you're injured in a ravine or in a burning building or anything like that. We can now put these programs into autonomous vehicles and say, go get them, Tiger. And we're running insect algorithms inside these machines oh no kidding that is that is amazing i agree that, yeah <laughs> that is that is a leap i would not have expected no and and i think this is the brilliant thing about humans is when we put our mind to it we can turn any information into something useful that's amazing just to think i yeah and now i'm now i'm very stuck on the, even you know the connections all the way back to ancient egypt the you know the the ability of this this insect to detect the Milky Way these this amazing navigation ability 
you know, and, and we're trying to use it for navigation. But that's that's just, I love the interconnectedness of all of it. Good. Me too. Here we are. Okay. So, um, you have uh, you have been talking to us about dung beetles, and and most recently about dung beetles in the Milky Way. So we want to see how much you know about the Milky Way. Well. Ah. <laughs> so we're going to ask you three questions, get two of them right, and we will send a prize to one of our members. Can I Google? <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell if you don't tell. <laughs> uh, first question. Unlike the Earth, the Milky Way is largely what? Flat, chocolatey with a caramel center, or U-shaped? <laughs> So you said flat, chocolatey, or U-shaped? Yes. Those are, those are my options. I would go for flat. Correct. Because the Earth is not flat, people. <laughs> Come on. Um, all right. Second question. The Milky Way moves through space at nearly how many miles per hour? 250,000, 500,000, or 1 million? Ooh, I would go for the middle one, 500,000. Oof, it's 250,000. Oh, <laughs> darn it. <laughs> okay, pressure's on. All right, question three. What is at the center of the Milky Way? A, again, caramel. B, <laughs> a massive Wi-Fi hotspot, or C, a black hole? C, a black hole. Yes, okay, you got it. We will be <laughs> perfect. So yeah, I told you the stakes are not super high. So um, perfect. We'll send out academic um, uh, pride is a terrible thing. <laughs> uh, I, as a as a fun fact, I did see that um, because the Milky Way, much like you know a lot of things in space, has a, a kind of a kind of an orbit. And the last time that the Milky Way is in the location that it is now, um, it was just at the beginning like almost before dinosaurs like when the first things were coming on the land and, th and that's so that's pretty interesting that is brilliant actually because you know i don't know if you guys get to see the milky way much in minnesota um, if, yeah if i go out to a really dark area but it's, it's so okay. much light pollution it's hard yeah we we see it not in the town but in the, in the country we see it very clearly in the summer Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to track its movement across the sky. You know, the, the movement of the planets and the sun and the moon are kind of obvious. Uh, the Milky Way is difficult. And we had difficulty with one of our research findings because we got the beetles lost at night with no stars. And we couldn't work out when we did our Milky Way work, why are they now not lost? And it's because the Milky Way was at the horizon when we did the early work, when they got lost. And we hadn't noticed it. We hadn't even thought about it. So I, you know, how did the dung beetles cope in the days of the dinosaurs? Was yeah. it high in the sky for them to use it? Or have the nocturnal species only evolved more recently? Hmm. Another question for a PhD. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, just to try to like back plot, you know, the locations of different stars and, and oof. Yeah. That'd be cool. That'd yeah. be really cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I have to ask, um, you know, this is uh, this is kind of one of those 
things where, you know, I, I think we've overall pretty much answered it, but I, I wonder if you have any you know final notes on it um, in terms of a, a take home message for conservation, you know, why people should value um, dung beetles and, and want them around. Yeah. Thanks. I'll put a chip in for insects because as I said earlier, they're the small animals that run the world. And I've stolen those words from E.O. Wilson. But they literally are at the base of every single food chain. And we're ignoring them. And our use of pesticides is just atrocious. And I mean you and me, you know, in our garden and things like that. So we do need to look out for the little guys because we talk about an insect apocalypse. And you're a lot younger than I am. But you can get people my age and older who talk about, you know, a snowstorm of moths when you drove your car at night. Mm -hmm. Those things don't happen anymore. Yeah. That, that strongly suggests something is wrong. And we don't know exactly what's wrong, but we are almost certainly the culprits. Mm -hmm. So we have to look after the small stuff and learn about it. And as soon as you learn about them, you know what cool things they're doing. I mean, what have we talked about today? And all insects are just doing crazy cool things. Learn about them, and then then you'll love them, not fear them. Yeah, I, I, I we, yesterday we talked to somebody about dragonflies, and um, I have to say, even so, about ten, maybe eleven years ago, I remember um, when I lived in Texas, I remember doing something in my backyard, and I noticed it starting to get kind of shady and what was weird about that is I hadn't noticed any clouds before. And so I look up and there's this cloud of, of thousands of dragonflies flying over my backyard. And it was just astonishing. Cause it, you know, at first I was like, I mean, like, are the, are they locusts? Like what's going on? And it was dragonflies. And, yeah. um, I haven't seen anything like that since. Yeah. Uh, and that's it, in your lifetime. Yeah, that's just in my lifetime. And you have to yeah. consider how long insects have been around and, and what kind of climatic changes they've gone through and yet persisted. And, uh, you know, when you when you do process of elimination, you're right. I mean, we're almost certainly the only outlying factor that's that's different. Um, yeah. Different. And the problem is, is we get to feel guilty about everything. You know, we can, <laughs> the eco-guilt is enormous. Yes. Uh, and it can crush you in the end. So you have to get over that, but you have to do your bit whenever you can. And if it means not squirting an insecticide, don't yeah. do it. You know, I have, uh, I have one final question and that is, um, so we, this year started a book club and, um, it, it's growing. Um, we tend to do about a book a month, um, but we started doing kind of two books simultaneously. We do a science and nature book and one that's related to like social issues, uh, racial justice in relation to the environment or you know, things, things along those lines. Um, and so uh, we've been asking everybody if they have any recommendations because we, we like to take either books that were written by um, our guests uh, to, to be able to use for a book club or, or what other recommendations they have. Great. Well, I would like to promote my own book for that. Um, it's called Dance of the Dung Beetles mm. by Marcus Byrne and Helen Lunn. And it traces a lot of what we've talked about today from the Egyptians all the way through to modern um, times and the place of dung beetles in human culture and science. It's, re it's really a history of science um, sure. from the dung beetles point of view. 
And then another one that I would um, I, I read recently, it's called Origins, How the Earth Made Us. Mm. And it's by Lewis Dartnell, D-A-R-T-N-E-L-L. And this is a, just a brilliant book because if you if you enjoy evolution, it's it's from the point of view of a geologist. So as a, for me as a biologist, this was just fantastic. And you know it shows crazy things like um, the coal belt in the UK and the coal belt in the United States as well. Interestingly, if you look at the politics of those areas, so the coal belt was laid down how many million years ago yeah and then the people living on top of it are all left-wing in the uk they vote for labor and in in um they're working class people and in the us they they i don't know i don't, i'm not sure who the the working class are voting for in the states at the moment but the mm-hmm. point is is that the geology beneath us influences literally our our current existence and he, oh, wow. he goes through how we evolved in Africa, um, you know, why we came out of Africa as a species. But it is, and it's just in such a lovely, easy read, nice pictures. You can bullet through this in no time at all. So that would be my other one. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really... another one. Oh, yeah, go ahead. En- Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Spectacular book about the value of science. And and it's it's you know we're talking about eco misery and eco guilt. It's it's a cheerful book. He's saying less people are living in poverty, more girls are going, getting education. Mm-hmm. The world is getting to be a better place, and he and it's full of statistics that support that. But he's his bottom line is it's science that's brought that to us. Oh, interesting. So I would those are my three. No, those are those all three are now on the top of my list for reading next. <laughs> they sound very interesting. Um, oh gosh, I it's it's kind of a problem. I have so many books that are just, I, and I end up reading several like at the same time. Um, no, I, I, I'm in the middle of like two, I do, but I can't. <laughs> and I should say well, one of them I'm listening to. Um, uh, I've started trying that. So I, I listen to one of them when I'm driving or when I'm doing yard work or whatever. And then I, I read the other one when I would actually have the chance. So mm-hmm. one about, um, um, uh, race in America and one about, uh, flatworms and planarians. Yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> so very different, <laughs> but very interesting. What a contrast. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. If there's anything that this uh, this conversation did for me, it was it was to um, to take pause. And and when you're outside, when you're when you're when you're passing by all of the things that you pass by, the the plants, the the insects, the birds, um, what what secrets might they hold that we are just completely unaware of? I mean, thousands of years people have known about dung beetles and and. And and not even not even that the the Milky Way piece is even the the most interesting or fascinating or important or consequential part, but um, really their their whole story, their whole story. It's just uh, it takes it takes some um, shifting of perspective, some taking on of of a new lens, and that's really what the show is about. That's really what we uh, what we try to do, is to. Um, Tell those untold stories. And so uh, um, 
I, I hope that um, we did the Dung Beetles justice today. The biggest of thank yous again to our guest for the episode, Professor Marcus Byrne. Obviously, we could not have done this without you, um, because you you made it. You you made the you made the whole episode with with your input and with your stories and with your your way of communicating science that uh, is not is not common nowadays. And again, thank you, the the person listening right now, whether it's in in an earbud or in a car or in the background while you're doing something else. Who knows? Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to this point. Um, if you are interested in supporting us, you can check out those uh, links in the episode notes. Um, again, just just share, 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 share our uh, share the episode, share the podcast, um, tell people about us, help grow the community, help grow support for uh, the the nonprofit, so we can uh, continue to do some um, truly amazing work. And you know, we'd we'd also love to hear from you. Any any feedback, any any ratings, any reviews. Um, even if you don't want to do a rating or review, you just want you just want to reach out. Um, follow us on any of our social media. Again, all those links are in the episode notes. That thing's jam packed. But you could also email us at uh, hello at thewiredlife.blog. This is Devin Boker, and you have been listening to the Wired Life. Peace out, Rainbow Trout.